1: This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55 yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network.
2: This is a league of A's and BC's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West. Wheat versus iron. Love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country. A league of Jacksons, Kwongs, Johnson's, Moskas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league.
1: And welcome to the 55-yard line with Greg James and Scott Adamson. And we are here today with uh, Dave Naylor of TSN, and we are talking the state of the CFL as we go into the new season. And we're going to talk to Dave and kind of get an idea of where the CFL is going, kind of using a historical perspective that we always do on this show. And uh, Dave, welcome, man. I appreciate it. Coming on.
3: My pleasure. We're looking forward to this, guys. Thanks for having me on.
4: Definitely our pleasure. I was going to go ahead and jump right into the some of the historical stuff. I'm, uh, as you know, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, so I was a a CUDAS guy back in 1995, and I know you've been around for a lot of the pivotal moments in CFL history, including American expansion. I was just wondering what your take was, what your thought was when that first happened. Did you see that as a a positive out of the gate, or were you skeptical?
3: You know, it's funny. It really reminds me a lot of some of the debate that came up over the last related to the XFL. I mean, it was it was feeling like I've been around a long time because we heard a lot of the same things. But you know, the, the, the Canadian Football League has been on kind of a thirty or thirty-five year quest to try to find additional sources of revenue. You know, that is that has been the you know, if you look at other leagues that have been able to sort of you know either through expansion or diversification have have found other revenue streams, which is, you know, added to their value and their stability and their franchise values and all those kind of things. And the CFL has, you know, tried different things to do that. One of which was U S expansion. And at that time, you know, the, the television dollars in the CFL were not very big and they'd actually gotten smaller kind of in the, in the late eighties, you know, which if you can imagine what happens to a sports league, if their television revenue stream starts to contract, <laughs> which it did in that time. Um, and, and you had you know you had a, a league that was playing mostly outdated stadiums and really at that time I was very bullish on the idea of the US expansion you know I, I thought you know similar not not dissimilar to today that you know the, the, the league was kind of being left behind a little bit and it had to take some risks and that there was if you look at the situation there ownership wise there was some real you, the league needed to sort of sell a vision to keep all its owners on board you know if, if all it was selling, was the same old, same old. It was going to be tough to, to keep the, get investment in the league and its teams. But if you could sell a broader vision of like, hey, we're going to be on US TV. Hey, we're going to you know, uh, go to new markets. Um, you know, this is going to be you know, the premier alternative football league in North America. That was kind of the vision. And you know, I, often it comes up, well, you know, should they ever try that again? Would you ever do that again? You know, it, it was so poorly executed. Um, in so many different ways that it's very difficult to evaluate. And I say that with respect to the people who were running the league at that time that were, you know, burning the office furniture to keep heat the building. If you know what I mean, right. It it was, it was nine times. And so I, I, you know, when I, when I'm, when I'm being critical, I'm not trying to be critical just for the sake of being critical. I, I I have to be honest and say there were some really poorly executed things about that whole thing, like on many, many levels. Um, But it may have saved the league because it, it bought it time you know they took some expansion money in from some of those not all of them the ones who paid weren't very happy about the ones who didn't as you can imagine um and uh, and it's um you know it and it bought the league some it ultimately bought the league some time so uh, yeah i was actually pretty bullish and 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 frankly quite excited about it because i think a lot of people in canada you know who love the cfl they they feel like it's the secret that don't even know about in the US, right? Well, what if we kind of exposed this thing, right? And showed it to people. And, you know, the people don't even know this thing exists. They see major college stars, you know, that don't go to the National Football League, and they think they just retire, you know? <laughs> like, and, and and we've got all these guys that you may remember from college that are playing up here and playing an exciting brand of football. So I think there was this idea that, you know, that maybe without our, um, you know, kind of the, a lot of times I think Canadians have some Canadians, I should say, some Canadians are ultra nationalistic and others are almost like the other extreme where, you know, they, they won't look at something, uh, as favorably because it's Canadian. And we kind of thought, well, what if we just expose this to people that saw how people liked it? And there were, there were glimpses and, and, you know, flashes of where you could feel that game getting traction in the U S. And then there were a lot of places that was just soul destroying. You know, I was in Las Vegas, the opening night, you know, 12,000 people and I remember sitting, standing in Nick Mileti, uh in his suite at halftime. And he had been very public about the fact that they expected to sell out every game. And here we are, you know, in 116 degree heat watching the Saskatchewan Rough Riders play the Las Vegas Posse in a stadium with 12,000 people. And I said to him, I said, Nick, uh, what, what happened to, um, you know, like you said, sell out every game. And I still remember what he said to me. That was probably our greatest miscalculation. Yeah, probably 12 and a half. And if, I don't know if you remember the end of the season in Las Vegas, they moved that team. They played their last home game in Edmonton. Right? right. Cause there was just, it was just like whoever showed up as a walk-up crowd in Edmonton was better than what you were getting in Vegas. So, you know, moments like those were very soul destroying for people who love the Canadian football league, right. you know, watching a guy sing Oh Canada to the tune of Oh Christmas tree in a stadium with 12,000 people. Um, you know, other things, like, you know, what happened in Baltimore and some of the – like, the, the legitimate – like, Baltimore and Winnipeg, you know, legit rivalry in 1994. You know, like, it was, you know, regular season playoffs. It was it was a thing between Baltimore and Winnipeg, you know, and that was really exciting and watching the way the fans got into it there. Um, you know, I, I still love that Baltimore Stallions team. Um, I can name, like, a good part of the roster off the top of my head. Um, followed a lot of those guys – afterwards we six years ago went to Baltimore and did the 20th anniversary of the team and it was actually interesting because we started making phone calls to Jim Spiros who was the owner and said hey this is we have this idea we'd like to you know do a story about the 20th anniversary of the only U.S. team that ever won the great cup
1: that's a great that's a great that is a great episode I love it's one of my favorites on YouTube now
3: well thank you very much we're very we're very proud of it the amazing thing about Spiros and this is I guess just the kind of opt creator he was because like you know he, he's got people that love him and he's got some detractors but he's certainly a guy who makes things happen one phone call to him and we said well what we want to do and they think we're going to fly to LA and we're going to interview Mike Pringle and we're going to go to Atlanta and we're going to interview Tracy Ham, we're going to come over to Baltimore and we're going to interview a bunch of you guys and like within a day Jim Spiros is like yeah you don't have to do all that stuff uh, I'm hosting a reunion uh here's the date uh, you know let me know if you guys can make it to that or you know and next thing you know there was a Baltimore stallion 20 reunion at Towson State University like a big event which was like it was a created for television event if you know what I mean yeah um, because if we hadn't had this idea I don't think they would have done it but you know all of a sudden our our job got made easy right we went we went to Baltimore that was it <laughs> and and we were in a room with like 30 players you know and and a bunch of them hung around the next day for us to do you know some the, some of the interviews that we did up close right so and a lot of these guys it was interesting how there had not been closure because they came back from winning the great cup in Regina. And I don't think there was a big, because remember the Browns are coming at that point, right? Like it's almost right. like the, the plug gets pulled that thing in October, I think is when it happens. Right. Um, Cause I remember go, actually going to believe it or not, a Cleveland Browns game three days after the great cup that year. Cause I, I actually, I lived in Saskatchewan. Uh, I was moving back to Ontario. I stopped in Cleveland. A buddy of mine had married a girl from Cleveland and we went to a Brown Steelers game with like, Ten thousand people at it or something, right? And and no advertising in the stadium, all this. Anyway, I digress, as I tend to do when it comes to football <laughs> okay. stuff. But, um, but um, the the uh, so it was really it was really a neat thing. But I yeah. I, I always love like kind of getting under the skin of people to, for the sake of an argument. But I actually believe it, so it's I you know I'm not one of these guys who comes up with cakes that I don't believe. But when I do have one, I believe I will ride it. And the one I write, people say, "Well, what's the greatest CFL team of all time?" And I'm like guys it's not even close it's the 1995 baltimore stallions like they they won their i think their final 14 games you know um they they destroyed very good doug flutie led calgary stampeder team in the gray cup you know they had like 14 players sign the national football league after that season like that's a league's worth in a normal yeah. year right and and a, and a half dozen of them that went on to decent careers, you know, Mark Dixon, Sharp Ordone, Josh Miller, you know, there are guys that, that got a lot of time in the NFL. Um, and then you had a, a, a bunch of them that went to Montreal and launched, you know, what became the, don- the dynasty that became the Alouettes, like mm-hmm. the core of that team, you know, guys like Neil Fort and Mike Pringle and Tracy Ham, And, uh, you know, there were others. I think Irv Smith went, there were, you know, for the first half dozen years in Montreal, there was a good still core of guys left from ball. But so when you put all that together, you know, that to me is, is, whether it's a football team or the off field stuff, um, you know, Baltimore was the CFL's ringing success. And there were all kinds of reasons for that. Some of them football, like they hired a CFL head coach, you know, and a CFL personnel guy, yeah. every other U S management team hired either a former XFL or former NFL coach, every single one of them. The only one that didn't was Baltimore. And then of course, you know, Baltimore, and this is a thing a little bit similar to what you saw in St. Louis last in the XFL, what XFL market, you know, did the best St. Louis. Why? Cause there was anti NFL anger pent up and the way people expressed going out to watch the St. Louis team in the XFL, absolutely the same thing in Baltimore, right? Like in fact, they were selling so many season tickets in Baltimore when they first launched that they had something called the Indy challenge where they tried to beat the Indianapolis Colts season ticket number. Right. So it was like, anything they could use to kind of stoke those fires, right. About anger. And I don't know if you guys remember that when they, when they first came, I think it was the first preseason game or the first regular season game in Baltimore, that the team, they backed out a Mayflower moving band Man. like right onto the field and out came the players and the cheerleaders and everything running to the back of it. Because of course <laughs> the image of the Mayflower moving band, you know, taking their team away in 1984 is so ingrained. So there was some really neat, uh, you know, I, I only actually went to games in two cities and, um, I went to a game in Baltimore and I went to a game in Memphis. I saw the Birmingham Barracudas and the uh, the Memphis Mad Dogs. So, um, you know, I met my ex-wife that day and my kids exist because of U.S. expansion. So when people ask me about, when people ask me about U.S. expansion and all that, I always say, well, you know, my kids are big fans of it because they wouldn't have existed without it. Right. Um, so so there, there are some legacies left from that era.
4: Well, I really thought, because uh, the barracuda has opened their regular se- or their home portion of the regular season schedule against hamilton and they right. drew almost four thousand fans Yeah, so i remember I thought, man this is great you know they, yeah. maybe this will be like a mini baltimore or at least be mm-hmm. a team that can sort of compete with them attendance wise but then by the time the barracudas reached the end of the season they're drawing 2000 and it was just you know for me it was heartbreaking because i've been a cfl fan since the early 70s when they started uh hate to late games on local television. Yeah. I just fell in love, you know, with the rules and everything. And, and I thought when the Barracudas came to town that finally Birmingham was going to have a team that was going to make it because this was a league that had made it, but obviously uh, it was heartbreaking.
3: <laughs> I, I think that, you know, that, that perception of the league that had been around a while that this was not like, you know, arena league three or something that somebody had you know launched a bunch of franchises. And, and I don't know if that, if people understood that, you know, um, it's funny. I I was, I was going through. I just recently moved, and I among the things I found was the CFL's nineteen ninety two expansion plan document. Oh wow! They had actually handed, that they had handed out to the media. Um, I actually mean to take photos of it and throw the whole thing up on Twitter, just so you know people can dig into it. Oh but yeah, if, please do. That'd be great. Yeah, I'll, I've got it not too far away, and I'll I'll make sure if, you know, one way or another, I get you guys a copy of it.
1: Okay, um, cool. But
3: Thank if you. but if you if you look at it, it was aiming for border cities. Right. Was the original plan, you know, Portland, Oregon, right. You know, places like that, significant markets close to the U.S. border where people would maybe have a familiarity with the CFL through having got Canadian television across the border and just, you know, the the nature of knowing more about the other side of the border, the further you move away from that, obviously the people aren't getting Canadian TV, you know, their, their knowledge and, and um, you know, of Canadian football you know, it would be there in pockets, but not just sort of through osmosis, right, by being close to the border. So that was one of the things that they tried, they tried to get. But, you, you know, but Birmingham was the greatest example of just, you know, and again, I think this is something a lot of Canadians don't understand. And um, even football fans is like, well, they, they do, but they don't. Um, and that is the sheer awesomeness of the power of college football, particularly in the South, right, that it just obliterates everything else. And that when you have you could the, the idea that you could have a team that's playing, you know, in front of 40,000 fans and all of a sudden they're playing in front of two, you know, and it, and it was both. It was both college and the NFL, because, of course, we know the NFL is a television league. So it doesn't matter that Birmingham or Memphis doesn't have a franchise because on Sunday afternoons, we know what people in those cities are doing. Right? They're watching football and they're going to watch, you know, the, the Steelers or the Cowboys or the 49ers more than they're going to pay a well the Barracudas and the Rough Riders it's just you know one of those things that I mean the summer it, it's funny you know for all the people that have failed at spring football you know CFL is really the only one that's tried summer football but right? I guess there's been an arena mm-hmm. league so, and, and summer has always seemed to me like the great opportunity because you know what are you up against baseball right and baseball is like the national pastime but it, it doesn't it, it people aren't afraid to go away from a baseball game for something else right even if you're a fan they play every day it's not going to it's it's it tends to be i think a harder competition an easier competition than going up against something like the nfl or college football where if you don't watch today there's no game tomorrow so, so summer summer has always felt to me like the opportunity and i'm actually always been a little bit frustrated mystified that the cfl you know hasn't been able to d- do better with you know a summer television contract in the us right they've generally been you know exposure contracts not really monetary and you know, and cause you know, we see that when there's a good return or great catch, it ends up on ESPN sports center and stuff like that. And again, probably Why? Cause there isn't other football highlights. And that was one of the things that intrigued me a little bit about the XFL opportunity, right. Is that lo- looked like if they did it, you know, they, from what I know that the, the idea would have been, the season would have been, would have been included July and August, right. You probably would have been wrapping up your season on labor day or late August. And I thought that presented an, op- an interesting opportunity because for all the, of spring football, you know, going up against NBA and NHL and March Madness and um, and the start of the baseball season in the summer, you, you kind of would have it, you know, a little, little bit wide open to yourself. But um, and, that, and that really did sort of translate in the in the U.S. expansion days until we got to September. Right. And September yeah. game changer everywhere, but nowhere as much in the, in the South.
4: See, that's where I misjudged it because Art Williams, who owned the Barracudas, he decided to play just about all the home games on Sundays, you know, once uh, NCAA and NFL season started, which I thought, okay, but that's because I was a CFL fan, but you were right. There were people, you know, whatever, whether it was the Falcons or whoever that was playing on Sunday, they were just going to stay home in the comfort of their den yeah. and watch that and not pay you know eight ten bucks to see the, the kudos.
3: Well, and the same the same is I think very much true here. Like the league used to play a lot of Sunday games. If you look at the CFL schedule now, there's almost none. And the only reason they do is Montreal they play in a college stadium where after Labor Day they have to give up Saturdays to the colleges, whether it's you know football university team, field hockey, soccer, whatever it is. That stadium gets used by the colleges. So. The Alouette home games after Labor Day have to be Friday nights or Sunday. You, you can't play on Saturday. So it's really become sort of a Thursday, Friday, Saturday league. And I think that's, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, why why compete up against the National Football League? And even I don't want to speak for TSN, but even for us, our purposes, you know, we're the NFL's rights holder in Canada. So it doesn't make sense really for us to be programming CFL games against the other football property that, that we own. And again, that, I don't certainly don't speak for TSN on that. I'm just using logic. I lost you there on sound. Oh, whoops, sorry, I had, I had it on
1: mute. <laughs> okay, I had it on mute. But going back to what you said about summer football, I yeah. mean, people I know, and I live, you know, you're talking about border cities. I live in Chicago, so four hours away from the nearest border, no exposure mm. to Canada or the C- or the CFL, or that all-important CBC back in the day. Back in, that the C- day sure. back in Yeah, so when I was a kid growing up near Detroit, we had that. But when you're talking U.S. expansion back then, so we're looking at border towns like close, like Portland. Were they even talking about North Dakota? Did I hear? I believe. Did you they ever were, hear that yeah. one time?
3: Yeah, I believe that you know they looked at places like you know, that would be you know Minot or or um, you know uh, I'm trying to think of other cities in North Dakota, but I think that was kind of you know part of the idea, right? Was that you would right. that you would string. I'll have to look at that expansion document because they actually have you know proposed cities in kind of without, you know, anything uh, tangible, just kind of right. theoretically, that's where they, they were looking to go in. Yeah. So they I had like I
4: Rochester, mean, or Syracuse would have been. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Those slides. kind of places.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
4: Absolutely. So, sure. So
1: they had a plan and it's one of my big things. Oh, where, yeah. It went, yeah. Okay. All
3: right. But the plan yeah. went out the window. The new plan became if the check clears, <laughs> ah. like, I mean, that really was it. Right. I mean, I, I think what was, what started as sort of a, a strategy and remember at that time you had, you know, 1992. You had Rocket Ismail and Doug Flutie in the league, right? That was, and if you look at, there is actually a there's a preseason game played in the spring of '92 in Portland, Oregon, and it is, and it's Calgary and Toronto because they want to showcase Rocket Ismail and Doug Flutie, right? And those guys were still, I mean, Ismail at that point was in the second year, what was supposed to be a four year contract. Flutie was, you know, pretty in his CFL tenure, but had established himself as as a great player, and of course, his name had value in the U.S. So. A lot of it was trying to traffic on, you know, the names of those two players that they could, you know, they could use to kind of sell, you know, the game in in that way as well. Um, But um, but but I think that that overall strategy and that that really was where the XFL thing might have differentiated itself. You know, other than the fact that they had teams in Shreveport, Louisiana and Baltimore and San Antonio and Memphis and Birmingham. There was there was no real synergy between those franchises. Like there was no sort of overall American strategy. It seemed either on any even right to the point of television. Right, is that the league was on ESPN two at that time? But I think most of those markets I mentioned did not yet get ESPN two. Which you know you know which if you know football and television you know go go together. So you've got your league on a network that isn't penetrating a lot of your markets where you've got teams. And the other thing I remember about you as expansion, that really was, and you guys obviously know that, you know, football schedules in the U S are very regimented, right? High school play Friday, college Saturday, you know, NFL Sunday. And now you've expanded that to, you know, Monday and Thursday. And there's, you know, the Mac conference playing on Wednesdays and stuff, but generally people know when football is just by looking at what day it is. And in the CFL it's all over the map. Right. And that confused the heck. People right, they're playing Thursday and then Sunday and then Saturday. And, and that just seemed to be one of the things that people struggled with with the league is that you had you, you didn't have this automatic familiarity of when team when they play. I remember interviewing people at like a Hooters in Memphis about that. Right, the guy's like, I have no idea when they play. You know, that, was, that was that was part of the feedback. And
1: in, in marketing, in terms of marketing back then did the league have a marketing strategy for the States or was it left up to the teams or, cause that's the one thing. And you know, all of us on Twitter, we all complain about the marketing of the CFL,
3: but yeah, I don't think there was an American marketing strategy. I think it was all left to the, um, you know, to the disposal of the owner, which, which was, you know, which then came down to, you know, how smart was he, you know, and hiring the right people and how much was he willing to spend right? those right. became kind of the, the things. And, right. and, like, you know, and a lot of it, like in Baltimore, it, it became organic. Right, it just took off. So because you because you had this great void, and you were you were you know, I used to, I used to, at the time used to say that you know, in Toronto was not drawing well those days. I said, you know, it's really interesting. People in Baltimore rally to the CFL because they think that demonstrates they deserve an NFL team, and people in Toronto stay away from the CFL because they think that demonstrates they deserve an NFL team. Like it's, it was like the, the behavior of the fan was was all towards sort of the same goal, but accomplished it in a very, very, very different way. And of course it worked out for Baltimore, um, you know, in in the, not, uh, not very long down the road, but no, there, I think it was very much local, you know, and, and that again was, was hard because it, you're you're not seeing the league sort of reflected on, you know, a grander scale. Um, and again, this is the things that I think would have been much, much different, you know, if they if partnered with the XFL, because you would have had, you know, a, an, uh, you know, a, a U.S. sort of business infrastructure that was sort of, that had a strategy, right. And whether that strategy would work or not, I couldn't tell you, but at least there would be, you know, a, an overall strategy for the U S market. And there really wasn't, you know, in, in those days, it was, if you look at even how it all came together so quickly, right. Like I don't know if you guys remember like in February, January of 1993, the, um, the league held a news conference where it announced its first two expansion teams, which were the San Antonio Texans. And the, uh, and the Sacramento Gold, sorry, the Sacramento Gold Miners, yes. Fred Anderson owned one of right. them. The other one was Larry Benson, right, who was Tom Benson's brother, the owner who owned the Saints. And um, Fred had owned the Sacramento Surge in the World League of American Football. And so he basically just turned the Surge into the Gold Miners. Um, I don't remember whether Larry Benson had been in World League of American Football. Uh, football owner i tend to think not but i mean they had a news conference and 72 hours later like san antonio pulled out so i mean like when i talk about this league kind of being seat of his pants like how, how how can that happen like you know this is your grand strategy in the u.s this is your first stake in the ground we're doing this here's our first two teams boom boom and two days later like they're done um i mean the coach of that team was supposed to be mike riley right who was who this is before his, his time in the NFL but after his time in college and I mean he won a great cup as what a like 35 year old coach in Winnipeg in something. so I mean you give Mike Riley no ratio in the CFL like that that would have been a, that would have been a good team yeah um, and, and then I mean there's another one you guys remember you probably heard about the Orlando fiasco right like where they um, the CFL called a news conference for to announce a franchise in Orlando Florida and I remember I was working CBC at the time. And we had, you know, this is not that common those days, technology wise in like 1993, it was, we got a satellite feed where we could watch the news conference, right? Like kind of like people do all the time now. But in 1993, it was because I was in the CDC building, we could hook this up. And we're watching this thing. And there's a there's a podium in the shot, right? You got a shot podium. And in the background, you can hear a CFL promotional video with Ron Lancaster's voice narrating, you know, Three downs, wide open field. You know our brand of foot, like you know something like that, right? And you, and you hear that playing in the background while you're looking at this podium. Five minutes goes by, ten minutes goes, by, fifteen minutes goes by. Still looking at the podium. Boo, color bars, boom. Right? It's like <laughs> right? and 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 then all of a sudden on the wires, like in the you know, on, we again have access to the news wires. You know, Dateline Orlando, CFL. Like the guys with the money didn't show up like like that like that that's how like again th- that really revealed cracks in how fly by night the strategy was like right. you had one team that folded 72 hours after it was announced and you had another where you like literally had to pull the plug on a news conference that that that, that, that didn't happen like it, it had started but it never yeah. Like the time had started and it had everybody there and it never happened. So, I mean, when you look at that and, you know, some of the other things they did, I think the last, you know, one of the things that really hurt the league in 95 was in 94, the Las Vegas posse was the league's worst disaster, right? Like ran out of money, fans not going like zero penetration in the market. So they played the end of the season at Edmonton. And then they got to decide what to do with the posse. Now what they should have done was just like, like euthanasia, get rid of that franchise, pretend it never existed. What they tried to do was save it and move it, right? And so, you know, there were efforts to move it to like Jackson, Mississippi, all through the spring of 1995. I remember seeing on conference calls and all this. And what this did was really screwed the league for 95 when you're coming in with Birmingham and Memphis and all these state- team franchises. Because basically the two things that the league couldn't answer until like May were where's the schedule and how many teams are playing. Now, what kind of impression does that you if you're in memphis or birmingham or like you know, a san antonio they were in that year as well that this new league is coming in but they haven't actually decided how many teams are in the league and they haven't put out a schedule now if they just got rid of the las vegas posse you know on november 30th uh, 1994 and said we'll just pretend that didn't happen and move forward with this expansion strategy you know, they could have they could have done a better job setting those franchises up for success and instead, all the time and energy went into trying to save the posse and even the headlines. You know, I just remember the headlines saying to myself, man, the CFL headlines, that it turns out every week are still no schedule. Not sure how many teams are playing this year. Like and those are those are bad. Those are bad, uh, you know, in, introductions. So I think there were like I talked about the number of mistakes. There were sometimes you just had to kind of fall on your mistakes. Right. And say, OK, you know, we are we're going to damage ourselves more thoroughly here if we just if we don't just accept that the Las Vegas posse was a bad idea and we probably shouldn't put this franchise on wheels and try to move it somewhere where it's going to kick off weeks later.
4: Well, one thing I remember about 95 is during the exhibition season, the stallions and the Barracudas played a game in Miami, supposedly as a preview of the Miami manatees expansion team. And then I remember never hearing anything more about that.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I remember that, that Miami thing as well. Um, Well, I mean, in those days, it just seemed like, you know, if you had a couple nickels together and the league's phone number, you know, you could get a meeting, right? (laughs) Like it was, it was, it was, I mean, I think the expansion fee was $3 million was what they were charging. right? You're the
4: fifth caller. You can have a franchise. Yeah.
3: I mean, it it just, it just seemed that way. Right. And and the league had some really, um, you know, the league's ownership on its own was, was not that solid that those days either. Right. Like that's one, one of the things that's got the CFL through its current pandemic and we'll see, where how long this this remains true but it it has the cfl is not a rich league but it has a lot of very very wealthy owners right now like the people who own the cfl franchises are not people that own mom and pop businesses that you know can that that they they may decide not to spend the money at some point if the business doesn't improve but they're not people who you know personally are hurting or burning through their personal finances you know at a at a a, i mean rate based on their own personal wealth so you know, that also wasn't necessarily part of the picture, you know, in, in the mid nineteen nineties. So it was, uh, like I said, it was it was desperate times, right? And then, of course, when it all collapses, and you know, this is where the you know, the league was selling, you know, it, it kind of the league retrenched as the you know radically Canadian league, right, and sell so almost like either not wanting to talk about the U.S. expansion, or you know, talking about it about what a horrible idea it was, right? And how they never should have betrayed themselves by going away from their roots and things like that. And even you know, Jim Pop and I have talked about this quite a bit about how you know the league doesn't really like to acknowledge the Baltimore Stallions in a lot of its history. And and I said, like I always, I, I mean, I've written, I've written that as a feature. You know, I think it was when the Grey Cup went back in two thousand three to Regina. It was the first time i had been back there since the Stallions. And I remember a feature in the Globe and Mail, like they essentially said, you know, the greatest CFL team of all time, hands down. Here it is, right and and Jim was on the record i believe with that article saying that he thought the, the league you know went out of its way to to not pretend it didn't happen but any it certainly never went out of its way to give it any extra you know acknowledgement right about about this team and, and i thought that was a you know that was a fascinating night in regina when when an american team won the grey cup it was really it was something else and I, I mean every once in a while i get you know i get right about things and i remember standing in the press box talking to people about this game and i said well, you know, the big difference in this game is, is going to be on special teams because, you know, the Baltimore Stallions have 12 guys on special teams that could be starting for most people in this league. And CFL teams, you know, largely have some special teams that were playing Canadian University football last year or the year or two. And they like that Baltimore team had a guy named Alvin Walton, who I think had led the Washington football team in tackles, like on defense, like two or three years earlier. And he was pretty much exclusively a special teamer on the Stallions, right? And you compare that guy to, you know, who's exclusively a special teamer on a CFL team built with Canadians. And, and you're talking about a pretty wide, you know, variety. So that manifested itself potentially in two ways. One is every time there's a punt, which in a CFL game could be a lot, right? They got Josh Miller who went on to punt for the Steelers and the Patriots and 11 guys that could fly down the field and cover those punts. You know, and then the return game was, you know, similarly, they, they were athletic on that, on the return game as well. So they were making massive gains every time the ball was exchanged. But the other thing was the potential for a big play. And so back to my, what I was saying. So I was standing in the press box and I used Alvin Walton, you know, as an example of a guy that NFL team has a guy like that playing exclusively special teams. And, you know, they got other guys that are almost as good, but he's the one who kind of jumps out because of his NFL resume. And he's only playing special teams with Baltimore. Well, about an hour later, sitting there halfway through the second quarter, I think it was, certainly it was in the first half, Calgary's punting, Alvin Walton breaks through, blocks the punt, right? And it, it's a turnover, and it's a game changer. And I just looked over at whoever I'd been telling this to in the press box and went, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't get right all the time, but sometimes you do.
1: Uh, and um, after, you know, looking back on the Stallions, inside the CFL – in in media do does the subject as the subject of the american expansion the stallions come up especially during this whole pandemic and the uncertainty just you know cuz when we talked to paul woods and he made yep. the case for john candy having yep. saved the league by floating the idea and kind of getting that ball rolling on american expansion and do you think the league has kind of learned the lessons of the past as they're moving forward or is it is it very much, you know, as I like to say, you know, in the military, you know, we're the mil, in the military, you only think about a year ahead. Is it kind of that same type of is it is it that thinking there in the in the league, you think?
3: You know, it's funny. And, and I read Paul Wood's recent book or it's coming out. <laughs> I guess okay. I read the I read the manuscript. because I was blurbing the it, the back of it for him. And it, it's actually one of the things that really jumped out about his book was how and I for, I knew this, but I don't know if I knew it to the degree he explains it. And I certainly forgotten it about how deeply vested John Candy was in the Canadian football league, you know, that, that he was as much as Bruce McNall and Wayne Gretzky were part of that ownership. You know, John was really its heart and soul. Right. And and he, and he threw himself at the league in every way he could. Um, and including, you know, the, the U S expansion idea, um, which I don't, I guess he see it in 1993. I think he died in spring of 94. So he would have just seen the one team. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think that the trouble with the, what happened to us expansion and the way people in the league look at it now is there aren't that many people around in the league that were actually there for it. Right? Like I don't think there's any owners that, that went through it. Um, and because it went so badly, it's generally just kind of, you know, thrown to the dustbins of history. I don't know if there's a real understanding about what worked and what didn't and what couldn't. So, but there is this, I, and this was, my, I remember thinking this at the time saying, you know, what the real shame is here is they didn't do it right. They didn't give it, you know, they, there are so many things you could have improved. So we don't really know if this could have worked, right? If I open a restaurant, and I hire the wrong chef, and I put it in a strip mall, you know, at the at the end of a dead end street, and, you know, I don't have good advertising. And, you know, I didn't do the decor properly. It doesn't mean that restaurants don't work. It just means the way I did it, and the decisions I made of doing it don't didn't work. I felt like that expansion, and when US expansion collapsed, I thought, you know what, this is really Sucks Because not only did this not work, but it basically probably ruined it for the next quarter century, right? Because anytime anyone brings up this idea, it's going to be, you know, and you saw that with the the XFL stuff, right? Like, again, I took a lot of heat on Twitter for being bullish on the XFL stuff. And again, what the XFL deal was. So I wasn't ever saying the league should do X or Y. All I was saying was that they should explore X and Y because you better know what this is before you walk away from it. Um, but he, but you know the the immediate reaction from so many people was just you've forgotten 1995 you've forgotten 1994 well no not at all I mean, I haven't forgotten at all but but I think I think that was one of the so when people talk about U.S. expansion right now there's kind of a knee jerk you know to well that didn't work and it almost killed the league and et cetera and we are and we know you know they that that's that they don't want and even the debate about about um, you know what the rules should be right like people say well okay we can expand we got to keep our rules. Another other people would say, well, we tried that, right? We tried to sell them a better mousetrap. And and I look, I, I love the CFL game. I love the American game as well. I actually love a world with both of them. Um, but I remember in Memphis, in being in 95, there's a guy named Thomas Harding who wrote for the Memphis Commercial Appeal. And he pulled me aside and said, you got to understand something here. People in America are not dissatisfied with their football. So when you're selling, when your marketing campaign is... Better game, better game, better game, better game. Well, people weren't looking for a better game, right? I mean, uh, if if you know, if I if I love something, the advertising campaign to me to tell me that they've got something better. Uh, I wasn't unhappy. I'm not complaining. I'm not looking for improvement, you know. So that was that that came up. That comes up as well. But you know, I think it's I think it's an area that the league, because of the history and because of the sort of poor understanding about what worked and what didn't. I think it's an area that a lot of people just instinctively shy away from. and think that's death. Like we saw that come out of the XFL thing, even though that would have been a very, very different business venture than the way the league did it, you know, 25 years ago or so. It's just that idea that, you know, only we get this game, only we appreciate this game. And if we try and do that, you're just going to be, you know, you're going to lose money. You're going to put your league at risk and you're going to have your soul destroyed.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and looking at the whole debate in the last four months, you know, hearing both sides of it and both mm. sides are very, you know, you know, you got the, the purists saying no way, yeah. you know, but, you know, the, the league, well, they walked away from it, but it sounds to me like things are still, it's, they could easily come back to the table at some point. Hey, when the season, the CFL needs to play their season and get people back in stands. But also we have the XFL, which really at this point is really logos and a business plan. And until they get back on their feet, then any talk of expansion, U.S. expansion, merger, alliance, is really kind of a moot point until really both products can – both leagues can prove themselves.
3: You you bring up a good point. And somebody like pretty high up in the league who was pretty close to the situation said to me afterwards, you know, like it would have been a lot easier to try and like merge two leagues that are in existence than trying to merge one that's in existence and one that's theoretical. Like that yeah. that was so – look, I, I agree with you. and I, I think anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen over the next two to three years with the Canadian Football League or professional football in general, like beyond the NFL, I think is guessing. I think there's a lot of uncertainty. And, I, and I've, like, I'm happy to focus on the 2021 CFL season and talk about the players and the coaches and the games and all of that but I'm also saying when people ask me just because we're back playing football, do not mistake that for all these leagues, the league's challenges are behind it because right. I think there are going to be some weight. I think the moment the great cup gets handed out <laughs> on December yeah. 12th, I think there's going to be an enormous to-do list for this league, right. um, you know, in order to get ready for 2022. And there's some real challenges there. So, you know, I, I think, I think you're right. Is and, and I, I don't, like, I, I have no reason to believe the XFL thing, is going to come back alive, you know, as early as next January, February, but could it come back in the future? I believe it could. Yeah. I think there are people in the league that believe it could, but I think one of the things that this whole process exposed is we have some franchises in this league that are, be very, very, very bullish on that idea. And we have some that are really against it. And that's, that's hard. And that's always been the history of the CFL is trying to get nine owners, nine franchises sharing the same vision for what the league should be. Um, you know, because you've got big market, small market, you've got Western Canada, Eastern Canada, and you've got private and public ownership, which is really right. complicates it, you know, to a, to a degree as well, because your, your missions are very different. So I, I think I think that could come back into play. But I, I think you know, we'll see what happens with the USFL. You know, I, I'm kind of skeptical about that one, just because all we know is a press release that says the USFL is back, even though this league seems to have actually none of the qualities of the old USFL right. um, it couldn't actually be more different from what you know we, we know. Um, and, and then you've got to see where the XFL goes and, and then you've got to see what the CFL returns to, you know, where, where the, where the needle returns and, and how, how, how many owners are committed to the CFL beyond this season, I think is still a question that, that bears asking. You've got one team that doesn't have an owner right now, it's owned by an estate. And you got two teams that were pretty bullish on joining another league. So you know what, what we what are we left with, you know, in the nine team CFL after the twenty twenty one season? I think there's some real. Again, I've kind of had my say on that, and I've written that, and yeah. I'm going to now kind of turn away from it and focus on football. Right. But I'm not pretending that it's not going to be there at the end of the season because I think yeah. it is.
1: Well, and then the other question too is: Are the owners, all the owners, willing to invest the money they need to invest in the league? to keep the league going, not for the next one or two years, but the next 30 years. And, you know, there's always been that talk is, you know, a couple things, merchandising, video game. I mean, and I, and I've been told many times, yeah, video game will never happen. It costs too much money. It's, it's, it's too narrow of a product. And, you know, I, I don't buy a lot of those arguments. It's, 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 it's much you know, I hear no. And I'm like, well, there's got to be a way. There just has to be a way to expand your base and expand your product. And you use, you know, the Premier League is big in the United States. I mean, we have soccer teams, but it is big in the United States. They've managed to grow from – they've managed to grow. So Little mm-hmm. – um, you know, what's another good example? I'm trying to think of another good example where it's a little league, but it's been able to grow its footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, so – uh, what do you think? What do you think in terms of can the owners will the owners invest money in their own product to keep that product going? You know, much like the Hallises have had, or been in the same family for a hundred years <laughs> for the Bears.
3: Well, I think there's there's two types of owners in the CFL traditionally, right? And well, I mean, three if you've got the public-owned teams, but that's really its own category, right? Because right. they're just they're they're just building businesses year to year. So, so they want sustainability, right? They want to create a great yeah. product and a great experience and sustainability. Um, but among the private owners, there tend to be two types of people. One, people that are just straight up philanthropists, right? They own a CFL team like they own a yacht. It costs them five million bucks a year, but it's a blast, right? They bring their friends to games. They've got a suite. They're in, the, they're in the news. They like having the public profile. Some of them get held up as kind of community leaders because they own a team. And yep, this costs them five million bucks a year. But so does their yacht. They don't make money off their yacht. They just enjoy going on it, you know, ten times a year. And it's like the, the football teams, like that. You know, nine nine home games a year, ten. Uh, you know, you get to be the, the man. And 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 you've got other business interests that you can probably write those losses up against, so it's not actually costing you five million dollars out of your out of your personal wealth. And that's what you do. I I think that was the kind of owner. Just Bob Wettenhall was in Montreal for 20 years. I don't know that the Montreal Alouettes ever made a nickel in any season. You know, they might have some of those years where they had a playoff game. They, they could put in Olympic Stadium and, and sell 50,000 tickets. And, you know, they did that a few times. Um, but but on like the straight out cash-in, cash-out basis, regular season, playoff, standard CF, I don't know if Montreal ever made mine. But Bob Wettenhall owned that team for 23 years. Um, the other type of owner is the owner who kind of comes in and thinks he's found the the jewel in the rough, right? That that I've found something that is underexposed, um, has as is a great product that has never really you know reached its potential as a as an entertainment and business vehicle. And I'm going to be the one who's going to figure this out, and I'm going to benefit this because I bought this team for X amount, and I'm going to turn it into something else. Both of those types of owners tend to have um, expiry dates. One because you know, people just get tired of losing money or their kids get tired of them losing money. (laughs) That can happen, right? When the, when they, when the inheritance happens and the, and the other type is often they're met with frustration, right? About like, and I've seen this happen all the time, right? CFL owner comes in and says, we're not going to be like the previous owner. We're going to spend, you know, we're going to invest in this team. And they do. And then it's after sort of like two or three years down the road, when they're not getting a return on the investment that people, that all of a sudden, you know, you start seeing them not willing to spend because it doesn't make sense to spend $2 million extra to bring in an extra million in revenue. I'm better to spend none. Right. Then right. if, so if, if I can't, if I can't justify the return based on investment, I am making on my team. And then, and then you see owners wanting to get out, you know, when that happens. So, you know, this has been the, the, this has been the challenge for the Canadian football league for, for as long as I've been covering it. It's, in certain markets, it has to rely on philanthropy. And when you rely on philanthropy, it's hard to tell owners what to do because they say, "Well, like, uh, how much you know? How much money are you putting into this, right?" I'm, I'm, I'm the owner. I'm the owner here. It's hard. Like, if you look in the National Football League, why do the owners get in line and do exactly what the league wants them to do? Like, no questions asked, right? Like, but and every once in a while, an owner will push back on some stuff, and the league would just, you know, crush them with the other thirty one it's because the check from the league office comes out. I just read the other day with $308 million last year. You said to me $308 million a year, I'll do whatever you want. Right. right. It's like that's, that's the way. And in the CFL, most of the teams revenues are locally generated, you know, like the, like the distribution is about, I think the last distribution was about like $5.4 million or something like that. And that's, that's after tele- that's television money, or maybe less than that, maybe it's 4.5. I'm trying to, it's in that range. Anyway, that's television money, national sponsorship money, after expenses of running the league office, right? Paying the commissioner, all right. the league staff, all your officials, all, your, all that stuff. So, you know, for a team like the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, it's bringing in $43 million of revenue a year. Look, What, 11% of their revenue came from the league? You know, and, and maybe other teams, it's a little higher because their local revenue is less. But you're talking about an economic, the, the economics are, you're really, you're, you're the, the health of your economics, your CFL franchise is mostly dependent on how you do in your local market. That not, not based on the, on the league. So these owners that come in, you know, realize very sometimes the limitations of how much revenue they can generate in a CFL team. In certain markets, like, and, and the, the, you know, the great example in the elephant in the room is Toronto. Like Toronto is the most frustrating under him for people because you have a franchise here that has 130, 140 year history. Everybody's parents, grandparents went to Argo games. And, and this generation largely has not, uh, there's no competition in the market. There's no college football here of any significance degree. Uh, it's a market of 6 million people. It's the fifth largest television market in North America. And you can't get thousand people to a football game. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the frustration, you know, the Argonauts are the best example because they've had six owners since 1991, I think. And everyone has gone through sort of the same pattern. Hey, we're going to do this. We're going to invest. We're going to promote this. And then you see the sort of pendulum start to move backwards. And then they hand it off to the next person. And that's right. that pattern has repeated itself over and over. So you get to your question, are owners going to continue to invest in, in the franchises? They are, but that's that's part of why you know, getting back to U.S. expansion was important. You, you've got to sell people a vision, right? If this yeah. isn't working now, here's how it's going to work down the road. That was the vision they were selling in 1993, 94, 95 to the owners in the lake. You know, then it became kind of, okay, we're going to be this Canadian thing. And now that we're getting to sort of 25 years past U.S. expansion and people are saying, you know, that business model that was broken in 1993, it's really not much better now, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And at least it isn't, at least it isn't in the big markets which is part of our league and you know where where most people are exposed to us and we ha- we're losing the demographic battle in, in all of those markets in Toronto Montreal and Vancouver so those are all those reasons why people so- sometimes feel you know the league needs a big shakeup and the owners need to be sold a vision and i think that's part of what the whole ex- exercise was like like hey we got some owners in our league that are very frustrated with this as a business not as a property as as a football property but as a business we need to show them something more than what we've been able to show them so far and that's where the xfl thing came in right that they could present a vision of the economics of the league being radically different in two to three four or five years than they are right now the challenge right now is you've got the traditional cfl business model and you're going to have to sell any owners that you're concerned about that you have to sell them on a vision with just now a 19 CFL. Now, what is that vision right now? It is, you know, we've cut costs, right? We've, we've cut costs. We've trimmed. We are more efficient. Uh, all our franchises have gone through this in the last year. We believe that single game wagering is going to be, you know, a panacea. That's going to mean a lot to the bottom lines of teams and improve this as a business. You just saw a story on Friday about the league for the first time ever is going to come out with uh, like NFL style injury reports. right Right. probable doubt whatever this is a league where like two years ago a team lied to everyone including the host broadcaster about who its starting quarterback would be in a playoff game right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like i i broke the story at like 10 30 on a saturday night and moved the betting line like five points with one tweet or something right it was like it was like yeah so yeah i remember that you can't have that yeah you can't have that happen right i mean they trotted zach caleros out you know and it's one thing to not disclose everything about an injury but when you actually lie, and in that case, when, when they had him say the words "I'm fine," that's now crossed a line, right? Um, and he did say those words, "I'm fine." Obviously, he—I'm not taking a shot at Zach, he believed the director of the club, right. and I—you I, know—I love Chris Jones, but doing that stuff is makes your league look like, you know. And if you're going to be—if you're going to be a serious option for people who are betting real money on sports betting, you can't be doing that stuff. So they're going to clean that up, right? And a lot of people believe that that. That, that will change the engagement, the television numbers, the demographics, all of these things that we've been talking about. Television numbers, by the way, are not bad for CFL. They're, they're good, they stand up to major league properties in this country. And um, I but, know in
1: the States they're pretty good too.
3: And in the States, they've been traditionally weird, which is, yeah. you know, again, part of my sort of amazement that the league's never been able to monetize that. But right now, you've got to sell a vision. That's been the because the CFL business model has always been kind of a work in progress. The league's always been selling a vision to its owners. Here's what we are now. Here's what we're becoming. Even you look at what Randy Ambrosi did with the CFL 2.0 and bringing in the global players, right? He came in about a year after he's there. Here's my vision for the league. We're going to sell streaming in Sweden and Mexico and Germany because we're going to bring players in from those countries and have them in our league. Now, I understand that theoretically i'm not sure you can monetize that i think there's people that are less than convinced you to monetize that but as kind of what we we said earlier this league has been in a 30-year quest to identify new revenue sources and present a vision to its owners of why it's going to be more profitable and more um you know self-sufficient in two or three years than it is today and that i think will be its big challenge coming out of the pandemic and yeah you know we'll we'll see how many owners buy that
1: well and i think in part two i think the CFL got a really good wake up call when they went to the government asking for help and completely turned away. I mean, to me that, you know, while embarrassing, obviously to the league that had to have, you know, especially at the top going, yeah, we need to change. I mean, you would think that they would say, yeah, we need to change the way we're doing things. So um, have you talked to the commissioner? I mean, I know the commissioner is a commissioner and he is employed by the owners, but Is there any sense from the commissioner's office that, yeah, things are going to change that they're going to, you know, kind. and I hate using the NFL word, but maybe kind of moving towards a way that the way the NFL does business in terms of the league office.
3: I think governance has been an issue in this league for a long, long time. And I think it, it remains, I, I think out of the commissioner's office, there is a real determination to try to change things to not, you know, be the league that lurches from one crisis to another because you know the CFL's game over the last thirty years has been just don't have too many crises at the same time. Like people forget 19, we had a league, we had eight teams carry them on trail out of the Montreal Alouettes, right? And and an owner that wasn't announced until you know January after they've been looking pretty much for a year. The problem is if you get two or three of those at the same time, you know you're gonna that's where you're gonna really be in trouble. And I think I think the commissioner, you know, is very cognizant of the history of the, the league. I think he did not enjoy the Montreal experience of spending all his time and energy and resources or a significant amount of it, searching for an owner, for a team and trying to convince somebody to take over a team that instantly is going to lose money. And I don't think he wants to go through that again. So I think there is certainly a, a wherewithal from the commissioner's office to you know try and change the CFL's traditional business trajectory. And I think that's why he was willing to go down the XFL road because of all of that. So you know that you know, but I don't know that that same willingness. What it ultimately is going to would require is giving up, you know, some degree of team control to the league. And I don't know that the in this league are ready for that. I don't know if they've ever been ready for that. And I think that's probably what would have been one of the reasons why the XFL thing didn't happen. Is it would have required a significant degree of giving up control of things by the teams, especially on the business side. And I'm not sure they were willing to do that.
4: Yeah, that's what always kind of puzzled me about it because both versions of the XFL have they've been the single entity model. Right. And obviously you've got two vastly different ways of doing business there.
3: Mm-hmm. But I don't know what the XFL's plan for this time around is. I, I hear I've heard people talk about them wanting to sell franchises. Um, but it but undoubtedly, you know, it would have had a different governance structure, you know, and, and that's you know, back to your point, Greg, about you know is the league willing to kind of try to do things more along the lines of the NFL? You know, it's, it's, it, it's hard because you don't have as big revenue streams that you can use to distribute. And, and it, and it, it's, it's, that, you, know, you can, you can move to a governance structure that's that way. And first is revenue sharing, right. Which is going to come up. Everyone knows the NFL, basically the basis of their revenue share, their model is revenue sharing, right. That, if New York said one day we want to keep all the revenues that are generated in New York for, you know, the giants and the jets, you know, well, that's got to, that's going to make somebody poor, right? If everybody just, if the NFL ran the way the CFL did, that most of that your franchise's wealth and revenues are going to be determined on how you drive drive money from your local market, the green Bay Packers would be out of business by Wednesday. Right. Um, And the, and the, and the Dallas Cowboys and the New York giants and the Houston Texans would be, you know, Franchise. All the, markets, all the big markets would be the wealthiest franchise, and it's not that way. In the CFL, what makes revenue sharing and governance especially tricky is the league is upside down that way, okay? The richest franchise is in a market of 225,000 people, Regina, right? The second wealthiest franchise is in a market of 750,000 people, uh, Edmonton, Winnipeg, about the same, like those, and, they're, and, they're, and they're publicly owned. Um, and, you know, even, even Calgary, you know, you have you, you, similar market, you know, whatever million people, a million in Edmonton, million in, in uh, sorry, million in Edmonton, a million in Calgary plus, and then, you know, 750 plus in Edmonton. Look at Toronto. Like I said, fifth largest television market in North America, uh, own, team owned by Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, um, you know, Vancouver, again, big market, Montreal, big market. So if you're going to actually you know, do to governance and business like the NFL, it's going to require publicly owned teams, smaller cities to share money with privately owned teams in bigger cities. And like you think of in, in Saskatchewan, right? It's a pretty people driven business, people reaching into their wallets and buying shirts and hats and season tickets and whatever else they can sell and slap a Rough Rider logo on. Cause pretty much everything they do there sells. How are you going to convince those people that that money should ultimately find its way to Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, the company that pays Kyle Lowry six hundred fifty thousand dollars a night? <laughs> like, 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 they pay one basketball player six hundred fifty thousand dollars a game, Canadian, right? Thirty-eight million dollar contract, U.S. or whatever. So, so sorry. Why, why does Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment need us, the people of Saskatchewan, to send our money? So you can see how tricky this becomes, right? Yeah. yeah. Immediately, you know, yeah. and. And a lot of those and the attitude of a lot of those teams, you know, historically in the West has been, you guys just don't know your business. You know, why, you know, how come we can generate this much revenue in this market and you've got 10 times the size of market that I do and you need my help. Like that's, that has been the traditional conundrum of CFL governance, at least in this era, since, you know, the big markets stopped being the big markets in the seventies, the big markets were still the big markets, right. but it's been a long time. And so that's where, you know, and then that's where the league, that's where trying to adapt to an NFL style business model. Like, can you imagine if Green Bay was asked to start sending money to New York and they weren't sending it back? It was just a one-way flow. Yeah. People say, Well, how the heck, right? And that's yeah. that's where you get no. I, I look, you mentioned a single entity. I had an owner in this league leave this league 20 years ago or so say to me on the way out the door, the only model that makes sense for this league is single entity. You know, dollar made here is the same as a dollar made there, dollar lost there is, you know. And and the government and it would change the governance and stuff. And I've I've brought this up, you know, a few times, you know, in a year since. But and I've even brought it up over the course of the last year, started asking people like, could could you see the CFL coming pandemic, the XFL thing completely reform itself into a single entity? And the reason I was told that can't happen is that you've just got owners in this league right now that have made massive investments, like over 15, 20 years. Like let's look at Bob Young, owner of the Hamilton Tiger cats, right? Guy, I don't know how much money Bob Young's put into that team, but it's a lot, okay? Um, he may be making a little now, maybe losing a little now. He's probably got it back. You know, it, It's a pretty good little business. I don't think the Thai guys have ever been run better than they are right now. We're at a high watermark, and he might be making a bit of money. But over the years, he's invested a ton. So how do you take him and a guy who just came into the league and say, all right, we're both going to – we're going to – I think equally, we're all 11% owners in CFL Corporation, Inc., you know, and we all have the same stake and well, wait a minute, I I put 40 million bucks in this thing. What's he put in it? Nothing. Right. So it would be hard to do that. I I, I believe that probably the only way you, and and that still may be the best model for the Canadian football league, but fortunately I think the only way you could ever get there is if the league turned to dust, like you had a full on collapse and like no more Canadian football league. And then somebody comes along and says, well, we got to start this thing up again and we're going to start it from scratch and we're going to put nine franchises out and we're going to be a single entity. And this is how we're going to run. Right. I right. think, unfortunately, you probably have to hit Armageddon before you got there. But, you know, it, it, I yeah. don't, I don't think there's a way to morph this league into that model. You know, one yeah. way would, would be if someone came in as an outside source and just bought it. Right. Right. Like, like, like um,
1: Vince McMahon tried to do.
3: Yeah. And, the it actually, remember, the there was a company, um, game plan out of Boston that tried to do that with the NHL in 2005. Remember when the NHL hadn't played in a year? I oh, did yeah. not hear about
1: yeah. that. I did not know yeah. that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And that and they they came out with a proposal to like buy the league for three billion dollars or something like that, just the whole thing. And I mean, you know, they, they were take trying to take advantage of an opportunity because the business was gridlocked, right? At that, right. Point, they they first league to miss a full season and all that. So, I mean it would always, I always thought it would be interesting if you had an entity that came along and said we would like to buy the Canadian Football League for X, right? And and then operate as a single entity. I guess you could do it that way as well. But I know I don't think that's anywhere on the horizon.
4: The Amazon Canadian Football League.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, you tell me what world is coming, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like I you know, it's it's I mean, it's one of the, the, you know, I always try to look at kind of what's changed in the world from previous times. Right. And I guess that, you know, the value of live content on television keeps going up. Right. Right. That's, that's why the spring league was on TV this year. You know, that's, and, um, and, and single game betting, I guess. So the, those are the two things that if you look at what in the CFL's environment is working in its favor, you know, those would be the two things that you could say, okay, if I was looking to the future and trying to sell people on the, this, the, the, you know, the potential of this league, I would say, produce very good content. Um, we have a great product. It does good numbers on television and we're moving into an era where that, that means even more. And uh, um, and now we got single game betting that is gonna, you know, which is a great marriage with television because it, it, it just sort of strengthens our television audience and the engagement and things. But as a television product, I, I tell this story to people in Toronto because I always, I always find that, um, like I'm from Toronto. I've been back here for 14 years but I lived in Saskatchewan, I lived in Ottawa for 16 years. So I, I know the CFL from every kind of market perspective, big, small, medium. I've seen it in all, in all three. Um, people in Toronto generally don't understand how significant the Canadian Football League is outside of Toronto. And, and one of those ways is as a national television property. So every once in a while, I'll try to tell a story that like, people will go, that will have trouble believing, but is actually true. And one of the ones I love to trot out is about five years ago, we had a and we had a uh, a Toronto Raptors NBA Pacers playoff game on a Tuesday. It was a it wasn't like it was a first or second round playoff series. And in Indiana isn't a great rivalry, but it was an NBA playoff game, you know, like in a in a big market. It's pretty it's a pretty good NBA market. We aired that on Tuesday. On Thursday, we aired a Saskatchewan Rough Rider preseason game. Do you want to guess which one did the bigger number? I tell that to people in Toronto. They say, that's not true. I say, yes, it is. That never happened. It did like not 30 years ago, five years ago, Saskatchewan Rider preseason game on TSN beat NBA Raptors, Indiana playoff game. So it's a, it's a very strong television property, you know? Um, And that's basically why the league has been able to, you know, been able to exist and it's television revenues of, you know, have gone up significantly over the last 15 years. But, you know, that's, you know, if I was making a presentation about the business strength of the, of the Canadian Football League, that's our television. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, with that, with that said, in terms of the U.S. market, you know, TSN is, you know, the, you know, Scott and I, we, without ESPN Plus, we couldn't have this conversation because we sure. would, we would be literally in the dark begging yeah. for clips on YouTube. Yeah. And as we move forward here, you know we're about ready to wrap up. Do you have? I mean, do you have hope for the CFL as we're moving forward?
3: I do. It 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 is it is the most resilient league I've ever known. Um, you know it it ha- it has people who, um, you know, one of the beautiful things about being around this league, and and maybe this is just a function that it's not a league that everybody who's associated with it, whether they are talking players, owners, coaches, whatever, gets filthy rich from. But there, there is a there is a love for this league and this game that is unlike any I've, you know league I've been around and and not that it's greater it's just different you know it's kind of there's a there's a sort of a, a significance or a love for it that's not driven by just you know profitability or business and that's that's in some ways the league's biggest strength and its biggest weakness I do have hope for the league but I do think the league is going to have to do some it's going to have to talk about its history. the the the, great, the greatest asset and the greatest sort of restriction of the CFL is how much it is beholden to its history. But you can't sell you can't sell a league by by selling the museum of its history. You can't show people pictures of black and white photos. Frankly, you know, a great deal of this country, their families were living in another country where those photos were taken. So they're not really. That's right. not much of an endorsement. Like if I'm if I'm somebody whose family is from Vietnam or or Africa or Asia, and you show me pictures of the 1956 Argos, that's not really going to like <laughs> light my fire about why <laughs> I should become a CFL fan. Um, so I, it's got to figure out a way to be, you know, not the old white over fifty demo. And I I, you know, I talk about this. All the time, and, and people will send me, Oh, I'm 22 and I love the league. Yeah, I, I'm not saying you don't exist, I'm saying there aren't enough of you, you know. Right. And anecdotally, I know that because of what I do for a living and what I talk to people, and I know that. The, so, I think the league has a massive demographic challenge. Um, and I do think it may have to make some radical adaptations, and I don't know what those are right now, but I do think there may have to be. But I, I, I've always been hopeful for this league, and, and I just think sometimes in this league, the challenge. Challenges get kicked down the road um, rather than you know facing what might be an uncomfortable reality for some things because I because I do think there are significant challenges in the three biggest markets and my my worry about the league is is the league going to run out of people that want to own teams in its three biggest markets and subsidize them and and this is kind of what my whole leading into the season business wise is in order for this league to be stable you need one of two things okay. You need people in those three markets that are committed to investing, spending, and ultimately losing money. Or you need to fix that business model for those markets. And I think the business model is a long way from being fixed in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. And we'll find out if we have owners that are committed to losing money in those markets. If you don't have one of those two things, you've got a crisis. And that's what worries me about the league. But I, I always believe this league can adapt. And I, and I do believe that you know, there that there are going to be some times where some real hard decisions are going to have to be made, and and some risk is going to have to be taken. That's that's my belief in it.
1: All right. Well, hey, Dave. And on that note, we'll end here. We know uh, you got training camp. You you got you got work to do. Uh, with training camp in full swing, and, and Scott and I, I, I know him, and I, I have worked. I have to. You know, we're doing a morning interview here. So, um, with the, that final thought, where can everybody find you? Um on twitter
3: you can follow me on twitter at tsn dave naylor at tsn dave naylor uh also my work uh shows up at tsn.ca I do a lot of writing um like a lot of people in television i'm a former newspaper guy so i write a lot on the on tsn.ca as well our videos and hits that we do are uh, are available there as well
1: cool and hey are we going to see you down here in the states on espn plus during the pregame shows
3: I hope so. I hope so. That's my role. You know, like the, the insiders on the pre pregame show, bringing you you know, the news from around the league and, and various teams and stuff. So uh, yeah, I expect you will. I certainly expect you'll see me there. This summer. We'll be awesome. sure to wave when we see you. Excellent. <laughs> give you guys the peace sign.
1: Awesome. Dave, thanks a lot. And we will hopefully be talking to you soon. And if you know, if time, if you got time this season, we'll bring you back on and just kind of check in with you where the, where you think the league's at at uh at whatever juncture we can we can get we can get you at.
3: My pleasure guys. Uh, it, it's been fun. Enjoy the 2021 season.
1: All right. Thanks so Thank much, you. Dave. Cheers. Bye-bye.
5: Cheers. Riz got fading Let's do this right. What you drinkin's what I'm drinking who has got a light. We about to kick off this night of five from dusk till dawn. Man, it's on See of fail Home to your sand Music's playing, yeah, we're swaying Crank it to ten These stars are falling like confetti So wish on one For the gun. Third and one from the gun Underneath those Thursday night lights Singing long
0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network.